we've been doing a series kind of post-Easter that uh, we just called Standing Together. And it's an acknowledgement that all of us are in relationship with people all around us. And uh, the first sort of mini-series of this bigger series was on the aspect of community, the one that we experience in in relationship within the church body and uh, and how we can live out some of the one-anothers. And then uh, now we've uh, shifted, this is the third of three messages on marriage where we talk about the relationship of, of, uh, of marriage. And then um, next week we'll focus specifically more on, on family. And so these three messages on, uh, on marriage, Pastor Ken started us off on the last Sunday before he left on uh, sabbatical part two and uh, just did a really good introduction about relationship and marriage and, and um, really had a word I thought that was excellent for single people as well. And so I hope you uh, were able to catch, catch that. Last week, Corey Anderson uh, spoke and was a great message. And he framed it around the question that, what do I do when I look in the mirror and don't like what I see? And it was a great uh, analogy and easy to, to follow. And when we look in the mirror and we just see that we're just a disheveled mess, and what do we do? And we have three responses, right? We can remove the mirror. Uh, we can just stick it in the closet, but the problem really doesn't go away. We just don't deal with it. Secondly, we can just smash the mirror, and we can declare that the way that I look is not my fault. This is uh, what we do when we can't accept responsibility, and so we, we blame others for the way that we look or the way that we are. Or thirdly, we can get out the brush and brush our hair. And that's when we are mature enough to realize that only I am the one who can correct the problem. We do something about it ourselves. Well, that message kind of got me thinking, because when it comes to this subject of marriage, it's, it's such a broad, broad subject. What are some of the things that we can do, then some practical things that we can use to strengthen our marriage? I think my mic just died on me. Did uh, Oh, maybe I hit it. How's that? There we go. And, uh, and so that got me thinking about what do we do? And I, I feel like I, whenever I speak on, on a subject that can be very specific, obviously everyone here is not, marriage. It got, not married, it got me thinking um, that I hope that those of you who are single, um, who are maybe looking forward to marriage, that you can um, kind of glean some things, not only now for the relationship that you're in, a lot of the things that I'm going to share today I hope will apply in other contexts as well, um, but also maybe just uh, prepare you for the future a little bit as well. And I also know that when you speak about marriage, it inevitably um, raises uh, painful memories for, for some people. And uh, please hear my heart, it's not my intent at all to, to add any more pain or guilt or anything to, to your life, what you've already gone through. I know that it's incredibly difficult. Um, <clears throat> but nevertheless, you know, I think we need to be reminded of what the Bible teaches about marriage. And again, as I said, this is huge. And when I was listening to Corey last week, I'm like, where do I go next week? Like, how do I... Uh, what do I add to this? And, and then I realized that I had about three or four messages floating around in my head. And then to try to narrow it down to one was almost impossible. So I'm giving you five messages, I think, in one this morning. And we'll just sort of rapid fire through them and, uh, and then go from there. So if there's a lot of stuff here, I hope that uh, something will be helpful uh, for you this morning. But what can we do? And do is actually a really good word 
for marriage. Right? It's a simple word. It might be one of the first words that we, we learn as an infant besides mama or dada or mine. It's do. What do we do? And it's easy to remember, which is good for us because some of us might be a little slow when it comes to marriage. And so when we just hear the word do, it catches and captures a lot of things in that little word. It just means to perform an action, to do something. In fact, in the marriage ceremony, the pastor will ask the bride and groom, they'll ask them separately to declare their intention to be married. And I know this because I've performed a, a few weddings. In fact, did one yesterday. And um, in this part of the ceremony that, that I call the declaration of intent is simply this, right? And you've been at enough weddings where you've heard this, where it's, you know, fill in the name before God and these witnesses. Do you take fill in the blank to be your wife? And And that's just the first question. And sometimes... Uh, if I don't ask, start the second question quickly enough, uh, people are quick to jump in and say, I do. And I'm like, no, no you got to wait. There's two questions. Because the first one's pretty easy. Do you take? Sure, I take him or her to be my spouse. That's the easy part. But then it goes on and says this. Do you intend to love and comfort her or him? Honor and keep her or him? And in joy and in sorrow, preserve with her or him this bond, holy and unbroken, as long as you both shall live. So we've kind of ratcheted it up a little bit, haven't we, from do you take? Sure, that's easy. To really? Love? Yes. Comfort? Yes. Honor? Yes. Keep? Yes, as long as you both shall live, yes. Those of us who are married have responded to some version of that, and so we have all said, I do. But what do we do? Let me share five things this morning. These are the five messages. Due diligence is the title of this message. And it's the first point because I think it's the first and most important. If I only had time for one point this morning, this would be it. To do diligence. Marriage, really like any relationship, is simply solid, hard work. And to be diligent means to be careful and persistent in that work. A strong and healthy marriage takes effort. Now... It seems so obvious, but sometimes people get married and they don't have a realistic view of how conscientious they need to be and how hard they have to work. And when they find out after saying, I do, they are often surprised. You see, dating, that's the easy part. But once you say, I do, you are saying that you're committed to working hard to build a healthy and strong marriage. Solomon described the field of a man who lacked judgment. Proverbs 24, 30 through 34 says this. I walked by the field of a lazy person, the vineyard of one with no common sense. I saw that it was overgrown with nettles. It was covered with weeds, and its walls were broken down. Then 
as I looked and thought about it, I learned this lesson. A little extra sleep, a little more slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, then poverty will pounce on you like a bandit. Scarcity will attack you like an armed robber. And what Solomon is saying is that as he looked at this field that was covered with thorns and thistles, he thought about how laziness and neglect allowed poverty to sneak up on us like a burglar. You see, if we let live in a mess long enough, we may not even be aware of how bad things really are. And the same is true of a marriage. If we choose to do nothing, our marriages will, over, will eventually be overrun by weeds. If, however, we want a beautiful, attractive marriage, we'll have to approach it with all the care and hard work of a gardener. Because understand this, marriages are never static. You can't just flatline. You're either going in one direction or you're going in the other. You're either growing closer together and getting a more solid, stronger, healthy marriage, or you're starting to see the, the cracks and fissures in that, in that relationship. If you're ever out for a walk, one of the things that you'll notice if you just pay attention to these things is the various states of the yards that you come by, right? Some of them are a total disaster. They're a mess, covered with weeds, thistles, dandelions. Have you noticed that just in the last few days? A little bit of rain, a little bit of sun, and suddenly you've got yards and roadways that are just yellow with dandelions. Other times you come by and you see the neatly manicured plush lawns. You know, the beds of the landscape rocks are neat and they're clear of grass and weeds. No little tufts of grass growing haphazardly throughout the rocks. The, sh the shrubs are all trimmed back. The flower beds are bursting with color. What can you immediately assume when you see that? Well, that the owners of the house like to garden? Sure. But more than that, that they are also prepared to put in hours of hard work that are required to keep their yard from resembling the jungle down the street. It doesn't just happen. In fact, if you neglect it, it goes in the opposite direction. And so in the same way, if we want to keep our marriages weed-free, and believe me, there are many weeds that need to be pulled in any marriage, like taking each other for granted, or comparing our spouses unfavorably with others or uh, on any number of levels. We must be prepared to work hard. A strong, healthy marriage does not just have to happen. We have to do diligence. And this also requires that we have an eye for detail, watching to ensure that we do not allow destructive, destructive pests to infest our garden and began to spread. Uh, the little things that bother us, right? They, 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 they quickly spread and they become almost unmanageable. Leave that one dandelion there, just leave it alone, and, and before long you'll have many, many more. So you have to have an eye for detail and watch for the little, the little things that, that uh, get under our skin and, and deal with those things. And just as healthy gardens need water, it's very clear to me that marriages need the regular watering of God's Word. We have to make Scripture a daily part of our lives. We have to sit under its instruction. 
Because God uses his word to shape us and to form us. At times to prune us and to trim back the, the branches so that we can have a, a, a you know, be, begin to more clearly and closely resemble his son Jesus. If we don't water with God's word, we're in danger of having everything we value dry up around us. Tina will tell you this, and she's not here to... Well, she's in children's ministry somewhere. Um, actually, don't ask her about that. Just ignore this. Um, but she'll tell you that when I get grumpy and ornery and just not to be much fun to be around, I know that's hard for you to believe, but it does happen. I'm either having a sugar low, or I just have missed too many days in the Word. And Tina knows, because she knows my sleep schedule. She knows when I get up. She knows what I do in the morning. And oftentimes she'll ask at that time when things aren't quite so rosy, have you been in the Word consistently lately? And you know what really bugs me about that question? is I know that she knows the answer, which of course just ticks me off even more. And so be prepared to do the hard work. Due diligence. It just doesn't come easy. Secondly, do vigilance. Do vigilance. Or just be careful. I think this is related to diligence, but different. This principle is found in the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. So, if you think you are standing firm... Be careful that you don't fall. Be careful that you don't fall. I like how the message puts this verse. Don't be so naive and self-confident. You're not exempt. You could fall flat on your face as easily as anyone else. Forget about self-confidence. It's useless. Cultivate God-confidence. See, this just means that we live realistically with what I think is a healthy measure of skepticism. See, we need to be honest with ourselves when it comes to the temptations we face. We need to be vigilant in guarding our spouses from potential problems in our marriages which they themselves may not detect. As a pastor, I have the opportunity to experience kind of both ends of this marriage spectrum. The pleasure of, of, of helping couples prepare for marriage and then the pain of watching marriages disintegrate beyond repair. In preparing couples, I, I use an inventory, and one of the things that it assesses is relationship expectations. In other words, does this couple really know what they're getting into? And not surprisingly, many young couples don't have realistic expectations. After all, they're in love and their eyes and their glasses are rose-colored, and everything seems so good and perfect. And so when asked to agree or disagree with this statement, and it always catches them, I love this, the question is this, or the statement is this, nothing could cause me to question my love for my partner. Nothing could, question, could cause me to question my love for my partner. 
And every young unmarried couple will always, almost always, agree or strongly agree with that statement. Because that's right, there's absolutely nothing that could cause me to question my love for the love of my life, and it's going to be happily ever after. Nothing? I think it's a bit of a trick question. But it's a good reminder for us too, isn't it? That there are things, and we know that there are things that our spouses can do that would cause us to question our love. But often on the other end of the spectrum, I've heard a recurring phrase from those whose marriages appear to be dissolving before their very eyes. It's this. We never thought this could happen to us. And that, I think, is part of the problem. It's foolish for us to think, rather naively, that we are somehow immune from some of the things that work against our marriages. You see, it just isn't very wise to allow our minds to be continually exposed to the ungodly thinking of our culture in movies and songs and books and magazines and then assume that we are somehow miraculously unaffected by it. You see, at the same time, we are being less than honest if we don't acknowledge the constant downward pull of our own selfish desires and the reality of not doing the good that we planned and sadly doing the bad we were hoping to avoid. You know how we should approach marriage? In the same way we prepare to fly. Those of you who've been on a, on a, on a, on a air, have traveled uh, on a plane before, you'll know that before every trip, right, without fail, the flight attendants go through the safety instructions. And they're preparing passengers for the worst while expecting the best. And you can always tell that there are those that have, have not flown very often. Why? Because they're the ones paying attention. They're like, man, if this plane goes down, I want to know exactly what I'm doing and where I need to go and what I need to grab and what I shouldn't worry about grabbing. They are tuned in. And then there are those that have heard it a hundred times. And they don't even bother to look up from their crossword puzzle or their Sudoku puzzle or whatever they're doing. And you know what? It's careless. It's a, well, this will never happen to me attitude. And suddenly, out of nowhere, the worst happens and we can't find the exits. All because we weren't vigilant. See, we simply need to be careful to not fall into the traps that have been set by our enemy. I think we would do well this morning to remember Peter's warning. 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Stay alert. Right? Be vigilant. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone or a marriage to devour. Do vigilance, do diligence, and do communicate. I think here, James offers some very helpful instruction for us. Everyone, 
and this is married and unmarried, should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. This is so important. Communication is absolutely essential to all human relationships. Sharing feelings, yes, I said it, guys. Sharing feelings, understanding, and really listening to one another. Think of the difference between engagement and marriage. Before we were married, we would lie awake at night thinking of all that our fiancé had told us that evening. And then we get married, <clears throat> we fall asleep before our spouse has stopped talking. <clears throat> Maybe a little close to home, I don't know. But why is that? You see, dating is a time of information gathering for both partners. Both are highly motivated to discover each other's likes and dislikes, personal background, current interest, and plans for the future. But after marriage, many women find that the man who would spend hours talking to her on the telephone now seems to have lost all interest in talking to her and spends his spare time watching TV and pursuing some hobby. You see, when studying the reasons for extramarital affairs, people frequently come to realize that one of the major appeals of the other person had been his or her listening ear. Conversation is an emotional need for some people, and it's possible to fall in love with the person who meets that need best. And sometimes a couple just stops talking and stops listening. And without knowing what is going on inside each, other, each other's head, a marriage has little chance to survive. And the person who is not feeling heard becomes so vulnerable. An innocent conversation in the lunchroom plants the seed. And then you keep watering that seed with more conversations. And watch out. To grow a healthy marriage, we must communicate. It's critical if we're to cultivate the level of intimacy that God intended for a marriage. If you and your spouse are feeling disconnected and distant, do something about it. Do communicate. And that could be said so much more about. But I need to move on. Do take out the garbage. Do take out the garbage. This phrase, take out the garbage, takes me back over 20 years ago when I was in seminary, <clears throat> and specifically to a course in marriage and family counseling. My professor for this course was Dr. Souter. Some of you may know him. And I still remember the picture that he drew. It's been emblazoned in my memory. I copied it into my notes. And it was just two little stick figures on kind of either side of the page. And, and, and in it, he just kind of had this big bump. And, and, and underneath this bump were all these words of garbage, unresolved conflict, not caring for each other, not meeting each other's needs, or whatever, whatever it was. There was all of this garbage in this relationship that had come between them. And do you know what happens when you don't take out the garbage? Anybody want to hazard a guess? stinks. And I remember the little squiggly lines I drew that showed the, the aroma wafting from this pile of garbage in this relationship. And I think it's a great mental picture for us to grasp. Because in any relationship, but in particular the marriage relationship, stuff that doesn't get dealt with, stuff that gets swept under the carpet, will begin to stink. 
And maybe it stinks so bad that no one wants to take the garbage out anymore. And then it becomes almost insurmountable and overwhelming. And what maybe started out as a little problem, it wasn't dealt with. And then more conflicts remain unresolved and unreconciled. And frustration grows. And frustration causes bitterness. And bitterness becomes resentment. And resentment almost can become hatred. And then you just don't care anymore. And that's the most dangerous place to come to. Apathy. Putting in time into... In, in, just putting in time. Going through the dull routines of life. No passion. No excitement. No creativity. No love. The fact is, in any relationship, especially a marriage, the garbage must be taken out. We are going to sin against each other. Garbage is going to collect. If you don't take out the garbage, it will stink up the whole relationship. Now your fights, your conflicts, are marked by criticism and contempt. In fact, most of us probably respond to conflict in one of four ways, and I think this is one that I will expand on in future weeks. Because I think it's so important that we understand how we are almost hardwired to respond to conflict in a certain way, and almost all of those ways are completely unhelpful. The first is just being passive. We just do nothing about it. We just take it in. Or secondly, evasive. We just pretend there isn't a problem. That's really good at sweeping it under the carpet. Or we become defensive. Well, of course I'm angry. You made me angry. Right? We, we, we just push back and we blame. And we become aggressive. We go on the attack. And sometimes you can even combine those and become passive-aggressive. And So our spouse is talking to us and we just roll our eyes or we make some sarcastic joke and, oh, I was just kidding, honey. But we've said cutting words and we've hurt. And all four of these ways are sinful ways because that's not how God wants us to deal with conflict. His way is for conflict to be redemptive. It's when we accept our part, our contribution. It's kind of like what Corey took us to last week, that we see ourselves in the mirror for who we really are. We accept responsibility for our part. We recognize our sin and we repent of it. That is, we confess our sin and we change. We don't just confess the same sin over and over without actually repenting or changing. Uh, from that. But it does take someone who recognizes that they themselves are a sinner to repent. And it often takes a victim to forgive. And then it takes two people to reconcile. You see, the way we take out garbage is to acknowledge our sin and then have our spouse forgive us. But there has to be change. Ephesians 4, 25-32 is a great passage that we could spend a lot of time on, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time there, but it's just, it, it, Paul is giving great instruction for how to speak to one another. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. And let me just insert, to his spouse. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands that we may have something to share with those in need. Here it is. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, 
but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may, be, may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and considerate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ forgave you. Study that passage on your own and think about how it would apply to how we communicate and how we deal with conflict in our relationships. Because I could say so much more about this. And like I said, I think that's going to be a message on its own when we start talking about families. In fact, to deal, there's a, a seminar this week, and we've been advertising it in the Sunday News for many, many weeks now. It's put on by Focus on the Family. It's just called Fight Right. And it's this Thursday. There's information there in the Sunday News if you're interested. But do take out the garbage, okay? Reconcile all the conflict. And lastly, do sacrifice. Do sacrifice. Ask yourself this question. What have I done in the last seven days that was an act of sacrifice on my part for the sake of my spouse? What have I done in the last seven days that was an act of sacrifice on my part for the sake of my spouse? You see, this question has an uncomfortable way of confronting us uh, with this crucial aspect of our marriages. Sacrifice in marriage means that we make deliberate choices to ensure the well-being of my spouse. Anybody here like baseball? You don't usually have many baseball fans in Canada. I know there's a few. Um, but if you've watched any baseball there's a particular play called a sacrifice bunt. You know what that is? There's a runner on first, and you are called not to swing for the fences, not to take glory for yourself, not to try to hit a home run, but to take the sure thing and lay down a sacrifice bunt that's going to advance the runner from first to second, and you are likely the one who's going to be thrown out at first. It's a good picture of marriage. There are times when we need to lay down a bunt for our spouse. But in life and in marriages, we are faced with a major problem, selfishness. Our sinful natures rebel against the calling to live for our spouse and to meet his or her needs. And a strong and healthy marriage is only possible <clears throat> when each spouse is absolutely committed to putting the other person first. I touched on marriage, I think about a year and a half ago in a marriage and I, in, in a message, and I suggested a book called His Needs, Her Needs by Willard Harley. And I know at least one couple went and they picked up that book and about three weeks later got a note about saying, thank you for recommending that book. It's really changed the way that we have um, understood. And we had kind of fallen into a bit of a uh, lethargic state in our marriage, but that really helped us think through some really vital things. And so even if your marriage isn't in a, you know, in, a, in a bad place, be proactive and pick a book like that up and say, how do we um, consider how we might meet one another's needs? You know, in Matthew 22, Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And we all know this. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Have you ever thought that you know, and the, usually the Good Samaritan comes around there, and who is our neighbor? Well, it's the one next to us, and, and all of that. Well, our spouse is that person who's living closest to us. Love God. <clears throat> Love your spouse. Know their needs and meet them. 
And in order to do that, it will require sacrifice on our part. In our marriage, the sacrifice that I make is that I'm often forced to listen to country music. Um, and I have to admit, it's somewhat grown on me over the years. And, uh, and I remember from many years back, a great song that I heard by Clint Black. And it's a song called Something That We Do. If you have a chance to Google this or YouTube it or whatever you do, it is a great definition of love. And, and here's a couple of lines that I just close with. And it's, he's talking about love. He goes, but it, love, isn't something that we find. It's something that we do. Love isn't something that we have, like it's a commodity. It's something that we do. Love's not just something that we're in. We're not just in love. It's something that we do. Love isn't just those words we said. It's something that we do. Love isn't something or isn't some place that we fall. We don't fall into love. It's something that we do. Love is a verb. It's something we do. We take action. And isn't that exactly what God did for us? He modeled this. He knew what our need was. We had a problem. There was sin in our lives. We were separated from God. And we needed a Savior. Because without a Savior, we would have to pay the penalty for our own sins. And that penalty was death. Instead, God demonstrates. God acted. God did. He demonstrates his own love for us in this. That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He willingly sacrificed his life so that we might have life, that we might have it to the full. And so today, as we remember his sacrifice for us, let's think about how we are called to sacrificially love others, starting with our spouses.